Right, good morning, everyone. Is this on? You guys have a good Christmas? Yeah. Yeah, good. good. I had a great Christmas. Uh, Megan and I did. We got to go to Kansas and eat some great barbecue and hang out with some awesome people. But uh, I'm just really excited to be back here with you guys, uh, back here at home. And it's uh, great to say that after two and a half years of being here at the Garden, I moved to the city and started coming to church here two and a half years ago when John was preaching uh, my, first, my first Sunday. And, uh, and I've just grown to just love all of you and just be encouraged by you guys. And uh, I really do think that this church is a true body of believers and that, yeah, that we don't, that you don't have to look really far to see people loving each other, caring for each other, encouraging each other, and praying for each other. And uh, just like a body, there isn't a lot of replaceable parts. Um, say for when Joel goes out of town and needs a break, you don't have another wordsmith up here to spin words of just truth and, and eloquence up here. You have people like me, people that aren't uh, trained in preaching sermons or reading the Bible. I'm a scientist, so by, by God's grace, here I am. And uh, I hope he can use me to give some encouragement to you and uh, teach you a little bit more about himself. And so what I want to talk about today is a passage near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a famous sermon that Jesus preached that really took everything that his contemporaries thought they knew about religion and what it means to follow God and turned it on its head. So Jesus' contemporaries, or the religious people of his day, thought that the way to following God or drawing near to him is by reforming their actions and following the law more closely, the law that was given to Moses, and that by doing that, they would draw near to God. But through this sermon, Jesus said that it's not the actions, or it's our actions are not the basis for drawing near to God. It's the state of our heart. And it's a renewed and regenerated heart and mind that we need in order to draw near to God. He said that it's not the triumphant victors, it's not the winners of this world that God is blessing. It's those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. And it's not enough to not just, it's not enough to not murder our brothers and sisters. We can't harbor any animosity in our heart. And it's not enough to simply not commit adultery. We must always look on our brothers and sisters with absolute purity. And it's not even enough to pray. We must always go to the Lord in humility, not seeking to be seen as righteous or holy or anything like that. Um, in Mark, uh, Jesus says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. So it's a focus on the inside. And this doesn't, Jesus isn't making it easier on us here because it's so much easier to try to rein in our actions and our behavior than it is our thoughts and our heart. But I think the truth, and Jesus obviously knew this, was that if our heart and innermost thoughts are sin and filth, there is no amount of behavior modification that we can do to prevent that from bubbling over into our behavior in the worst kind of way. So if we really seek to be holy, it has to start on the inside, on the heart. But even though that is difficult, Jesus does give us a path to do that. And, um, and I think a key to that path is in this passage. Um, and let me just pray first before I read it. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here today. And God, we thank you for your word, your scripture. God, we pray that your spirit is uh, present in this room and that we'll just open this passage up to us, that, um, that we may learn more about you, Lord, love you more, and uh, follow you more closely. God, use me uh, as an encouragement to these wonderful people in this room, God. Speak through me. And it's in uh, the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. So the passage is Matthew 6, 22 through 23. Uh, It'll be up here on the screen, but if you want a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and someone will be really happy to bring that to you. Um, but you can follow along with me. It says, The eye is the lamp of the body. 
If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And Luke has a parallel account of this same passage that I'll read as well, because it has some more in it. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. So here we have something small, our eyes, affecting the rest of who we are in a big way. And I think the image that Jesus is painting for us is kind of like a, a window in a room, that if the glass is clean and the window is clear, the light that shines through the window, that room will receive the full benefit of that light. It will be lit in all its parts. But if that window is dirty, or if the glass is warped or tinted, then the room will not receive the full benefit of that light. In the same way, I think, our eyes, or what we focus on, can affect the rest of who we are, our inside, in a big way. That I think there's two things to consider here. The first is, what are we surrounding ourselves with? If, light, if we're not surrounding ourselves with light, the room, or our insides, are not going to be lit up. Also, if, our, if the state of our eyes, or our vision isn't pure, no matter how much light tries to shine in, it's not going to get there. So we need to focus on two things. What we're surrounding ourselves with, the light and the darkness, and what are the state of our eyes? What is our vision like? So I'll start out with the first question, and that is, what are we allowing into our eyes? Are we surrounding ourselves with light? Because the state of the window doesn't matter if only darkness is being let in. And I think, um, I know I'm guilty of this, but I think a lot of people um, overestimate their ability to... I guess, to keep things out of their heart that they surround themselves by. We think that we can go throughout our lives and surround ourselves with darkness and light and only pick and choose what is being led into our heart and what is changing us. But I think that overestimates our ability, number one, to discern what is light and what is darkness, and then second, how we can, what, or our ability to keep that darkness out and let the light in. And one of the most notorious opponents of Christianity, I think, realized this, um, in his book, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, Friedrich Nietzsche says that he who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. And when you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. And I think the truth is that the darkness that we surround ourselves with, the darkness that is on the outside, it always finds a way inside. So we need to be so careful what we're looking at, what we're surrounding ourselves with, um, and... So the question would be, what darkness are we surrounding ourselves with? And maybe more specific, who do we look up to? Whose opinion carries weight in our lives? Um, I know beyond a doubt that I am the man I am today because a handful of people um, really poured into my life that loved Jesus, that were a model for me of what it looks like to seek him out in, every, in their everyday behavior and grow holier um, every day. I think that if I were to write a book about my life with Christ thus far. It's been about six years now. I could easily separate or name the chapters after the person in my life that had the biggest impact at that point. And, um, and it was by watching them and giving their voice, or giving them a louder voice in my heart than the voices that were trying to pull me away from the Lord, to pull me into darkness and evil, um, that allowed my heart to slowly change. That allowed my heart to slowly change. Um, so we need to surround ourselves with light and by letting that light in, the truth and light can take root in a place that there is only darkness. Um, in his commentary on this very section, John Calvin wrote, 
The whole course of human life is dark because no man proposes for himself a proper object, but all permit themselves to pursue eagerly what is evil. I think if we were to ask ourselves and ask each other what we are pursuing, we would all probably answer that we are pursuing what is true and what is good. But I think when we translate that into our behavior, it's not oftentimes so easy because we, because it's not always so simple what is good, what is bad, what is true, what is false, what is light, what is darkness. Um, and I think that is because we don't have a pure vision to discern the two. And that is because the window to the room or our eyes themselves are bad. Um, so the second question would be, what is the state of our eyes themselves? And in his um, uh, prequel to the Narnia series, The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis says, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. I'm not sure if you've heard of this artist named Julian Beaver, but he does uh, chalk um, artwork on sidewalks in cities across the world. And uh, if you were to walk by one of his pieces of art by chance, it would probably seem a little bit unremarkable and maybe even a little bad. Um, here's an example of, a, of one of his artworks. And you can see it look, just looks like a stretched out map. It's nothing very special. But if you were to turn and look at this piece of art, from the perspective of Julian as he thought it when he was drawing it, it becomes something totally different. So if we rotate, we see that this drawing kind of jumps out into three dimensions. We see this little guy at the top pulling a rope, and it looks awesome. But what we see is a large function of where we are standing. Like C.S. Lewis said, what we see, what, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. And here are some more examples of Julian's artwork at these various places that I think are pretty cool. So, and those pictures only look the way they did because you were looking at it from the perfect angle. And there are two things that I think we can take away from that. The first is that if we're looking at someone's creation or someone's handiwork, someone's artwork, it might help to look at it through the perspective of the person who made it. And also, what we see, it does depend on what we're looking at, but it might depend even more on what's on the inside. That we don't look at this world through an unbiased lens. Our biases and our prejudices and our preconceived thoughts color what we see. So it isn't only what is out there that affects what we see, it's what's on the inside. And I think in Oliver Twist, uh, Charles Dickens um, illustrates this so well. He says, such is the influence which the condition of our own thoughts exercises even over the appearance of external objects. Men who look on nature and their fellow men and cry that all is dark and gloomy are in the right, but the somber colors are reflections from their own jaundiced eyes and hearts. The real hues are delicate, and need a clearer vision. So the people that look at this world and see that everything is dark and gloomy and pessimistic, they might be saying something about the world outside of them, but that's communicating much more about the state of their hearts and their eyes than it is about the outside world. So we need to, when we look at things, when we perceive things, we need to be focused on what is the state of our hearts, how are we interpreting these things, and are we interpreting these things properly? And so, but I think the main problem to doing this is that Light and darkness are real things, but we have such a hard time differentiating between the two. And this has been a big problem throughout human history that over this millennia, uh, people have found that we often act in ways completely contrary to our well-being. You see playwrights poking fun at this and philosophers trying to solve this. 
Um, but it's a practical problem in our everyday lives that we so often act in ways that are directly contrary to what is for our own good. And um, I want to go briefly through two uh, ways that we as people have tried to solve this throughout, um, throughout the last couple thousand years. So the first um, starts in the 17th century. Uh, in Europe, the, Euro the political landscape was dominated by these kings or monarchs and church leaders that unilaterally prescribed how people ought to behave, what they should do, what they should believe, what is right and what is wrong. And so these little movements started to crop up where people started to realize that all people are blessed with the ability to ask really big questions and then use their deductive reasoning to find compelling answers. And this was extremely successful, people answering big questions, and they realized that they don't really need to rely on people with vested authority, that they can actually come to these answers on their own. But the problem was, and time would show, that there's a large gulf between knowing what the truth is and having that truth manifested in the way we behave. A simple example would be that we can know in our minds that it's in our best interest to work diligently throughout a deadline and, and not procrastinate. But so often, we never find ourselves doing that. We always let the work go off and off and off until we're stressing about a deadline. That we can know in our mind what the right thing is to do, but it's really difficult for us to have that manifested in how we behave. And so as this enlightenment view didn't work, people became disillusioned and started to say that the problem isn't that truth is out there somewhere and that we need to find shrewd ways of finding it. The problem is that we have allowed ourselves to be bound by these ideas of absolute truth or absolute light and darkness, and that <coughs> truth and morality are these fluid social constructs that can be molded or cast away whenever they want. Um, so that each individual has the authority and the freedom to decide what is right and what is good to do. And this is the postmodern view, or that's what was later called the postmodern view. And both of these are reactions against giving other people the authority to decide what is good for us, which I think is a very good thing, because as we know, other people, or people in general, are very sinful, and if we put all of our 100% trust in them, they are inevitably going to let us down. Uh, but the what I think their problem was is that they then located the path to truth right within themselves. So the Enlightenment view said that I can use my deductive reasoning and my rationality to find truth. The postmodern view said that I can decide my truth for myself. But we are subject to those same failings that other people are. So if we rely completely on ourselves to take us from darkness to light, we will inevitably fail ourselves as well. So if we can't look to other people and we can't look to ourselves, where else can we look? I think, fortunately, the Bible provides us a completely different, and I would argue better, solution um, to this problem of discerning between darkness and light and living um, in pursuit of light. So if we look at the Bible, if we crack it open and look at it from a pessimistic view, we probably would get all of the evidence that we would need to convince ourselves that humans are pretty prone to mistake darkness for light, that we tend to fail all the time. You probably know the story of the man and the woman who lived in complete unity with one another and the God that created them. Everything was wonderful, but the one condition was that they couldn't eat from the fruit from a specific tree. So what did they do? They listened to the serpent instead, ate the fruit from that exact tree, and removed themselves from the presence of God by their actions. And then you might remember the nation that was enslaved. God promised them a land of their own. He freed them miraculously from their captors, was leading them through the desert, and when they were hungry, he rained bread down from the sky to feed them. But one day, they thought that they wanted to worship a god that they could actually see. So they just took all their jewelry off, melted it, put it in the shape of a calf, and decided to worship that instead. 
and it only gets worse, um, the, later, a wise king of that people was walking on his roof. He saw a woman bathing, thought she was beautiful, summoned her to his palace, and got her pregnant, and then plotted the death of her husband. There's really no way to make that sound any better. Um, and, it, uh, and it only, in this strand of human failings, weaves its way even into the New Testament. We see in the book of Acts that the early church wasn't this pristine vision of holiness. It was marked by quarrels, divisions, and dishonesty. And we see Paul and his longtime friend and companion Barnabas come into sharp disagreement and part ways. And, we, and Paul tells us about him confronting Peter about his hypocrisy. So we see this strand that weaves its way from the beginning to the end of the Bible, that we as people are so prone to failing that no matter what our intentions are, we are going to waver. Luckily, this isn't the only thing that goes from the beginning to the end of the Bible. There is another theme that we can trace from the start to the finish, and that's that in every page we find a God that loves and treasures his daughters and sons so much that he doesn't leave us to deal with the nasty consequences of our sins by ourselves. No, he is there at every step of the way, beckoning to us, calling to us, that if we follow him, he will give us true joy, he will provide us a path if we would only turn to him. So at the very end of the Old Testament, after God's people had wavered from him in so many possible ways, had followed other gods, had followed other ways of living, here's what God said. He said, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. So when we were unfaithful, God was still faithful. And the beautiful thing is that he didn't wait for us to return to him. Just if you turn to the next book of the Bible, and it's a couple hundred years later, we see Jesus coming to this world. We see, this, we see the very Son of God taking up one of our fallen, broken bodies, this person who knew exactly what light was, exactly what darkness was, and followed a path of righteousness from start to finish. So if we want to discern light from darkness, Paul in Philippians gives us really simple advice. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we don't need to look within ourselves or to others for direction and guidance. We need to look at the flawless, beautiful example of Jesus if we seek to discern light from darkness. And here, we probably could stop because Jesus is sufficient. If we focus on him, if we have him fill our mind and our hearts, we will be led in the path of righteousness and our bodies will be filled with light and truth. But it is very hard to do this, and so I want to go through some just practical examples of how we as a church can discern light from darkness and get this pure vision so that we may see this world through the eyes of our Creator. And I think that there are three foundational elements to, Chris, to Christian discipleship, and they are community, scripture, and prayer. Um, these are three actions, but um, as I talked about earlier, it's not the actions themselves that draws near to God. It's the state of our heart or our disposition that matters. So we may think that these things, because outwardly they seem to be good, community, scripture, and prayer, we may think that these things are 
immune to being corrupted by sin, but I think that they are even especially uh, vulnerable to being corrupted by sin. So we as a church need to be careful about the state of our hearts as we do these things um, so, so that we don't convince ourselves that we are drawing near to Christ when in actuality we are falling away from him. So I'll start with community, and the most obvious part of community would be sermons, these things that we come to every Sunday. Um, and I think, in uh, my advice, I guess, and take all these advice, take all these bits of advice as, as what they are, they're thoughts from a 25-year-old guy that has a lot to learn. So, so, but this is what I think. I think that we should really come to Sunday mornings not expecting to be filled in for the week to come, that we should come looking to serve our brothers and sisters in the church. We should be looking to pour ourselves out. And one of my favorite illustrations that Joel uses, and he uses it commonly, is that we as a church should be much more like a family dinner where we're serving each other and we are all participating instead of a restaurant where we come and sit down and seek to be served and filled up. That if we want to be just a vibrant body of believers, we need to have that family dinner mentality. And so I think we should use this time to bless, encourage, and serve others as opposed to filling ourselves up with knowledge um, and whatever else. But I think that the beautiful thing is that, like a little rule, is that you get far more out of something when you go into it looking to serve others than if you did looking to serve yourself and to fill yourself up. So I think it's beautiful that if we go into these Sundays, if we go into anything that we do looking to pour ourselves out, God will then just bless us with so many things that we couldn't have fathomed if we remained being selfish. And so use these sermons as a starting point for introspection, conversations, study, and prayer. These sermons are the starting point, not the end um, and by any means. And the second part of the community that we have here um, in the garden are house communities. And this is a time that we have for 10 weeks where people meet for once a week, and it's a time that we can use to really relationally invest in a small group of people for a season where we get together, talk about our lives, talk about the sermon, um, and we learn and pray together. We celebrate when there's stuff to be celebrated. We mourn uh, when there are things to be mourned. And, uh, and it's a time that we can really be knitted closer together as a body of believers. So I think that's so important. And the last part of community would be accountability between one or two people, or, or yeah, just with a small group of people. And I think that is so important because we really need to have people in our lives that are close enough to see the sin in our hearts, the areas that we need to grow, but we, they also need to have the wisdom and the love for us to guide us down the path to, to holiness, to, to keep us accountable, to pray with us, and uh, to make sure that we are striving toward Jesus. And if, you, if any of you don't have a relationship like that now, I can guarantee you that there's someone in the garden that would love to start that. So please, write, in, um, write on the communication card in the bulletin that you would like to start some one-on-one -on -one accountability, and uh, we will do everything we can to get that started for you, because that has been such a blessing in my life over the last two and a half years, or over the past more years than that. So I would greatly encourage you to have something like that in your life. And the next uh, I guess pillar of, of Christian discipleship would be scripture. So the goal when we go to Scripture is to let Scripture mold our mind and what we believe and what we think and what we do. But so often, we go to Scripture with our biases and our preconceived ideas, and we mold Scripture to fit what we think and what we believe. And that's why we really need to approach Scripture in the context of community. We need to have conversations about how we study it. We should read Scripture 
and pull out our own ideas and our own thoughts. But then we, we just can't stop there. We need to talk about it with other people, especially those that disagree with you, because the truth is that if we both read the same Bible and we come from it with opposite opinions, at least one of us is wrong, and probably both. So we really need to talk about that. And um, that's why we really need to demonstrate the courage and the love for each other to have meaningful dialogue about Scripture, especially when it's difficult. And, <clears throat> and the last aspect is prayer. And I think we all know that this life is hard, and there are so many distractions, and we cannot ignore the gift that is prayer, the gift of spending time with our Father, thanking Him for the wonderful blessings He provides us, um, adoring him for who he is, and uh, seeking his wisdom for how to live our lives, and especially to lift up our brothers and sisters in prayer. So if our, eyes are mar- or if our lives are marked by these three things, community, scripture, and prayer, our vision will become clear, and we will begin to see this world through the eyes of Jesus. But then, to close, once our vision is clear, what should we fix our eyes on? And this reminds me of a song. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so if you've been tracking with me here, you, would, you know that I said that the path to having clear eyes is Jesus himself, but it is also the end. Jesus is the means in the end. And I think the beautiful thing about that is, is that as we contemplate Jesus and follow him, we become more like him and we draw near to him. And as we draw near to him, we thirst for his presence all the more. So I think that is the beautiful thing about the Christian life, is that we are constantly becoming more holy, looking more like Jesus, thinking more like Jesus. And that is why I think there's nothing more essential to the Christian life than contemplating on and delighting in the person of Jesus every single day. I personally hope and pray that I will continually be amazed by this man that perfectly loved everyone he came into contact with, this man that never once looked away when faced with evil and hypocrisy, this man that never once... um, he knew what true strength looked like. This man that, even when all had left aside, he never once wavered from the path that would enable true reconciliation between God and the children that he loved, even though it would cost him his life. I know, personally, that if the thought of Jesus ever fails to give me a profound sense of wonder and gratitude, it could only be because my eyes have lost their ability to see. Would you pray with me? Lord, We thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you don't leave us in our sin, that you are there with us um, every step of the way. Lord, we ask humbly that you reveal yourself more to us every day, and especially this morning. God, gently guide us in the path of righteousness. Help us to discern between light and darkness. God, that we may become more like your glorious and wonderful son, Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on him every day of our lives. And it it is in his holy name that we pray. Amen.